0: Good morning. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, without your help, our labor is useless, and without your light, our search is in vain. Invigorate our study of your holy word, that by due diligence and right discernment, we may establish ourselves and others in your holy faith. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, a few announcement reminders as uh, as we mentioned at the end of church a reminder to, to register for the lay theology conference coming up in two weeks so basically um, every saturday i think almost every saturday in february can be booked up if you're looking for something to do on saturdays uh, first uh, the first saturday in february coming up uh, next weekend is a bishop Hoyola from finland um, he's the, the international lutheran council up at st john wheaton Reception at 4:30, and then um, he'll be speaking on what's going on at the international Lutheranism throughout the world. And he'll be preaching here next week, and also teaching uh, in this spot next uh, next Sunday. We'll hear from him on the International Lutheran Council what's happening in global Lutheranism. The following Saturday, February 11th, is our lay theology conference. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller coming up here. Um, Like we've we've got. I think of the of the 50 or so registrants now, like half of them aren't from Bethany because we've we've marketed this to the circuit and to the district, and and also Brian Wolfmuller has his own cult following throughout the state as well. I'm sure. So we're so if you're interested in coming to that, it's totally free. Uh, come and go as you as you like. We really just want to know numbers for food so we have enough lunch so if you're going to come to lunch let us know uh, so we can be sure to have enough enough food for you um caring network baby bottle campaign ongoing Uh, next thursday february 9th the owls uh invite you to lunch at biagi's see the week at a glance for that and lastly um or next to lastly those those uh cursed old heavy wooden banquet tables uh this is your last call if you're, if you're dragging your feet on the tables, be sure to grab one of those out of the entryway here in the gym uh, or, or in the storage closet here. We have about a hundred of them. If you've, if you've got a use for them, otherwise we're gonna donate them um, or set them on fire. Either way, I'll put them in Steve Lindemeyer's truck and they'll disappear. Um, if, and lastly, um, for coffee makers, we've had a few families step up to help out with making coffee and fellowship here uh, during fellowship and Bible study time. That's much appreciated. Very low bar, easy to, easy to learn that and easy to do. We just basically just need people to commit to doing it. So if you want to demystify that and learn how, how simple it is to make coffee and, and uh, bring a snack if you, if you can, uh, that's, uh, you can talk to David Brouch or Gretchen Brouch. David, Gretchen, and they'll... Fill you in. Otherwise, everyone has to endure Bible study without caffeine, which is like, why? All right, Luke 15 today, and I will try to knock it out in its entirety. Um, we've got three parables. I'm laughing in the back. That wasn't a joke, Ty. I was serious on my intentions. Um, so we've got three three parables in Luke 15 and uh really perhaps some of the most famous of all the parables uh, of in jesus's teaching the parable of the lost coin or lost sheep the lost coin and then those leading up to the prodigal son so just quickly the to refresh the context remember the previous chapter was about the uh, one who loses his saltiness uh, how can he be restored and just like this high cost for discipleship raising this very true and clear reality for the disciple that um, we will be called to give up things. Um, as, as the Lord's disciple, it means if we're Jesus' disciple, then we're, we're not the disciples to anything else. And so there will bring, it will bring division at times into our lives. It will bring crosses and trials uh, throughout, our, throughout our lives as we continue to worship Jesus alone as our God. And so um, sometimes that cost seems too difficult to bear, and Jesus turns up the volume even more on the, what, how is one who loses his saltiness, you're basically worth nothing. You need to be thrown out, thrown into the manure, um, or not even fit for the manure. So, you're, so it has the Christian there saying, okay, there's this high calling of me, and the law has convicted me of really not being good enough. And... And with those teachings, Jesus has kind of moved us potentially into the, into the manure pile, into the outerness, into the disqualifying us for being disciples of Jesus, not being good enough, not being faithful enough, not being sincere enough. And that has us really ready for chapter 15 with the parable of the lost sheep, because you'll notice this Jesus, he calls only sinners to himself, those who are broken, those who are outcast, those who are rejected, and having been brought to faith in Jesus, then it's obvious like he is our God. And what starts to happen is this severing with these other gods in our lives. But it's an ongoing conversation because we're still in our sinful flesh. Even though my, the, the, our, our saintly self is striving to be faithful to Christ, we're still in our sinful flesh that's drawing us back. And so we're constantly going from faithful disciple to unfaithful disciple, lost sheep, outer darkness, and then he brings us back. So that's chapter, that's the context leading us into 15. Now, um, the, you'll, you'll, the, all three of these parables follow a similar theme of something being lost, someone doing diligent searching and then restoration and a big party rejoicing. So that's gonna be repeated and each parable has kind of a different theme. And the first one, the first one with the lost sheep is, is focusing on the lostness. The, uh, the, your handout there has a, has a cool little picture of a sheep on the side of a hill. We'll talk about sheep getting lost here in a second, but let's get the, let's get the immediate context for Jesus in 15 verse one. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Uh, why, well, I should note, because um, we, we actually have a few tax collectors in our, <laughs> in our congregation. And one time, I, one confided to me, and it was just kind of like this, they felt burdened by their own vocation, like the fact that they work for the IRS, that Jesus is always lumping them in with sinners. And we need to make that clear in our mind, there's nothing wrong with the vocation of, um, of, of of tax, you know, working for the IRS and so forth. In the context of Israel, the issue for the tax collector was the abuse that was being, it was rampant. It was, I mean, enough that it was just common for, if a person is a tax collector, they're on the one hand, they're a traitor from Israel to, to Rome because, and I think the, the Chosen, not the two weeks in a row of plugging the Chosen, but it does a decent job of showing how it divided families and it cut, like Matthew, as a tax collector, kind of cutting him off from his family and his people because the tax collectors are working from Rome, for working for Rome, but taking money from the Jews and they're Jewish people. So they're traitors. And the money that they're, the money that they're taking from the, Rome, from the Jews, it's like that's got a picture of the Roman emperor on it. And, and now further, as we learned from the Zacchaeus incident, tax collectors were also notorious for overtaxing. Because Rome basically says, we, you have to collect X amount of dollars or whatever the currency is. And the tax collector was kind of forced to make his own living by the difference, by the self-determining the difference between the cost of supplies and the cost of you know, running, or whatever, however you wanna bring that analogy to bear. So if, I'm, if I have to give 100, 1,000 bucks a week to Rome, then I need to calculate enough to make enough over and on top of that so I can feed myself. But there wasn't regulated by Rome, it's regulated by me. And so it was just a notorious uh, abuse of the tax collectors to be taxing well above what they were supposed to be taking. They're already traitors to, to God's people, Israel, according to the Israelites. And then they take their money and, and squander it in uh, potentially sinful ways. So tax collectors are just considered um, terrible sinners and then sinners. Now, why would they draw near to Jesus to hear him? Why, why do they want to hear Jesus? What's so intriguing about this guy? He didn't condemn them. So we, we find out Jesus is speaking with authority He's welcoming them in and he's actually forgiving them. He's giving them actually peace and and forgiveness, which is the the concept of forgiveness is, uh, especially in this setting, the Pharisees aren't giving forgiveness. The Pharisees are teaching you how to fix yourself. Self-justification, self-righteousness. So when Jesus comes along and he actually forgives sins and and people get all worked up because Jesus is teaching with authority and not like the Pharisees. Remember, that's always the accusation of who is this guy who speaks with authority, not like the Pharisees? Because the Pharisees are, are bringing the law to bear and Jesus is walking up and forgiving sins, which only God can do. So they're drawing near to Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes grumble about this. They're famous for their grumbling and, uh, and saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, why would that cause them to grumble? What's the problem with receiving sinners and eating with them? Why the eating? Why is the eating brought up? So by yeah, by sharing a meal, it renders renders the renders the one who's partaking food with them, it renders them unclean. But the whole concept of fellowship, table fellowship, which is a, a very strong theme in the Gospel of Luke, we can remember like almost every chapter, Jesus is eating meals with someone. It's always like the day before the Sabbath or on the Sabbath, he's eating a meal at some Pharisee's house, he's, he's always eating with folks. And this really starts to come, come to a strong point in Luke 24 after the resurrection where Jesus finally eats a meal with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember, and, he's, and, and he breaks bread with them, and they recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread, this table fellowship, unif- being joined together in, in fellowship with Jesus, but also with one another. So that's, that's a big piece of the people of Israel. You eat with, we do it, we kind of do it the same way. I mean, you're, you naturally, hopefully at church, it's a little different, like we, we want to get to know one another. Uh, in this, in, in our body of Christ here, so I mean, we try to sit with different people, but at the same time, you do have your friends. You know, you're, you you get people that you, you have a similar worldview with, or a similar life situation, and you and you get there's familiarity there, and so you naturally sit with people who are like you. You get to know them. You learn this very rapidly, probably by the time you're like eight in school cafeterias or whatever, right? You're just certain people, and then every every high school. Um, TV show or movie portrays this. There's the different cliques that start to form and you can and can't sit in certain places. So we all know this in our own experience that you are associated with those that you eat with, right? Even stronger here. So for Jesus, isn't just associated with the sinners by eating with them, but he is joining, he's, he's giving the, like the stamp of, seemingly giving the stamp of approval. Like he is a, he's condoning their sin. Jesus is soft on sin because he's sitting with them and not, and not outcasting them. He's, he's allowing them to, to eat with him. He's soft on sin. Now we know that Jesus is in fact not soft on sin, but Jesus isn't there to try to, fix, try to tell the person how to fix themselves. He wants to forgive them. He wants to bring cleansing to those who are dirty, to make clean those who are unclean, right? Right? So Jesus just isn't going about it the way the Pharisees are used to. And um, so you, one might say that the Pharisees thought Jesus was soft on sin. He's making himself unclean and he's um, weakening, weakening God's law. Now we know that Jesus does not weaken God's law. In fact, whenever he's pushed, Jesus is always raising the bar. So it's not, just, it's not enough that you don't murder your neighbor, but you can't think evil thoughts. Not commit adultery, but it's where it's the lust of the eye and the heart, right? So Jesus is always raising the bar of the law higher and higher. It's the Pharisees who make the law attainable. Because remember, the Pharisees think they've actually done it. They think they can actually, if they focus and try hard enough, they can achieve the demands of the law. See? So if you think that the law is achievable, then you've lowered the bar. That you can actually reach it. You know you to work on your calf muscles so you can jump high enough, but ultimately it's reachable. There's a difference in like, like I, I think, you know, back in the back in my twenties, if I, if I felt like pulling my back out, I could probably jump up and touch the rim, but I can never touch the back of the backboard, right? So it's like there's there's unrealistic, and then there's possible with hard work, and that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are possible with hard work, and Jesus says no, no, no raising the bar every time. So they're dissatisfied with Jesus being so welcoming to sinners. And, and if you think back to our, like our liturgical exposure to these texts, whenever the parables of the lost sheep, coin, and prodigal son come up, usually the prodigal son, because of its length, on the back of your handouts, like half of it's a, a reading and the other half is an illegal picture, <laughs> um, which I'll come back to hopefully. Um, the, the text itself is so long that we never hear the full context of Luke 15. So usually you'll hear that the, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees are grumbling, and then we skip to the prodigal son. We skip over the lost sheep and the lost coin, which is a great disservice to what's going on in the, in the prodigal son, um, but just, Reality, of the situation that we 're in with limited attention spans and paper space and service time, so we'll, we'll hopefully hear the full context here. So verse three, knowing the context then with a, he's, Jesus is directing it at these grumbling Pharisees who don't like Jesus welcoming sinners, eating with sinners. He says, "What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country? and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he, find, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. We'll pause there. The, so for one sheep to be lost is not that big of a deal. I mean, it's an, it's, it adds up, but the cost is something that the, the shepherd could, could eat that. But this this shows how great the value of every individual shepherd is to the to the in, every individual sheep is to the shepherd, willing to go out and find it. How was the sheep lost? Whenever, whenever this text comes up, it's an opportunity to kind of rail against sheep for being notoriously stupid. And I mean, and sheep are prone to wander. And you hear about, you hear sheep referred to in hymns and poetry and all the rest. But the idea is that the sheep, they don't, they're safe when they're all together, at least it creates more of a presence. But when a sheep wanders away all by himself, it's easy prey for coyotes or tigers and lion, or whatever. But what is the, what is the, what is the sheep chasing? It's not like the sheep thinks I'm going to go over there where the coyotes will eat me. What's the sheep thinking? Belly was it? Would you say, Don? Better grass. Better grass. That's the, that's the picture. Following my own nose to greener pastures to water, uh, whatever. So he's kind of wandering off, following my own desires that lead me into danger that I don't know is there. And so the shepherd's always there pulling them back. So sheep are always falling into holes or off of the side of cliffs. I mean, you get this the picture on your bullets and they're like, you just imagine this, this. It's like the lady in Indiana Jones who's falling into the hole and she's trying to reach for the, the Holy Grail. It's like the sheep is just reaching down just a little bit further to get the grass. Look at that grass down there. Not even counting the potential risk factor of I could fall to my death. And so the sheep would, would get in these terrible situations or get lost or get trapped in, the, in thickets and so forth. And according, according to the commenta- commentaries and sheep specialists and so forth, when a sheep gets scared, they just like go numb. They, they, they stop, they don't even bleat. They bleat not bleed, they, they just stop trying. And that's why this picture of the shepherd finding the sheep, what does he do? He doesn't like put a leash on and say, okay, let's go. What does he have to do? Pick him up, throw him on his shoulders. Not so he looks like Rambo. It's pretty impressive, I guess, when you see a you know, shepherd walking around with a sheep, but it's because the sheep just went, went numb. Now, here, the lostness of the sheep is a big deal. It kind of focuses us. If we're, in, if we're in the shoes of the sheep, we are the ones who we wander off, seeking, obviously never thinking we're gonna get destroyed. Never thinking we're going to get eaten or lost or hurt, we're only looking for what we th- what seems like it's going to be good for us, which is nothing different than Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? Hey, the, it looks like it's good, appealing to the eye and good for food, right? So it's that's it focuses on us as the as the sinners and the nature of us being lost. Now. What does the sheep do in order to be found? Nothing, Nothing. which is focusing on the seeking of the seeker, right? The shepherd who is doing all the work, who is doing all the finding. He finds a sheep, lays it on its shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found My sheep that was lost has a party. Ironically, the meal of choice was. (laughs) 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 Ironic. Lamb chops. I'll teach it. I wander off. No, no. Well, the idea of this this rejoicing is setting up. So this hope that it captures the joy of I lost something. A lost sheep is a dead sheep. For all intents and purposes, unless that shepherd finds it, the lost sheep is a sitting duck. I mean, eventually, if, if it doesn't get eaten by a coyote or whatever, it will just eventually die of hunger and exposure to the elements because it's, going, it's just laying there, right? So the, the, when the shepherd finds the sheep, throws them on his shoulders and just rejoices over, over this great thing being found. And then Jesus says in verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, by the way, who are the 99 who don't need repentance? No one. Now, obviously, Jesus is kind of like making a point for the scribes and Pharisees who think that they maybe don't need repentance, um, or, or just painting a picture of those who don't need repentance. But the idea is we know that it's actually no one. No, there's no 99 sheep that are back. It's all these only lost sheep that Jesus is, is seeking after. But notice the joy is in heaven. So what causes joy in heaven? So now what, what is repentance? And this is the teaching here of this parable. So oftentimes um, repentance will be, will, be, will be interpreted or taught as this, fixing of yourself like you're doing you're doing something bad now stop doing that thing that's repentance and that I think is the that's the intent behind like the like the whenever there's a a well-meaning Christian outside of like a football stadium or downtown Naperville like with a with the big poster repent or what be damned. And when they say repent, and usually they're going after homosexuality and abortion, which is pretty limiting of the law, really, because the law is calling us to repent for more than just those things. But what's their, what are they saying? Repent of your homosexuality or be damned? They're saying what? Stop it. When I say repent, I'm saying stop it. In what sense... If Jesus is teaching us repentance here with this lost sheep, what does repentance look like? A gift, A gift of being, being found, being lost, being damned and all the focus and all the credit is given to the finder, the seeker, the shepherd. So, and we're, and we're, so think about the Lord's Prayer. Um, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's God's will being done in heaven. There's joy happening in heaven. And when God's will is happening on earth, God's will is that he's shattering the plan and intent and purpose of the devil, the world and our sinful nature and letting his word go forth that faith would abound, that forgiveness would abound. That is repentance. God bringing his word of faith and forgiveness to sinners on earth. And that's bringing forth joy in heaven. In contrast, what's bringing joy to the Pharisees? When they're thinking about joy, what's really going to get the Pharisees joyful? Checking the boxes. Keeping the law, checking the boxes, striving after, the, striving after comp- making yourself holy according to achievable principles, self-improvement, self-righteousness. And, that, and that's where they would have found their joy. So it's, it's just t- totally shattering that picture. And Jesus is saying, this is what joy looks like in heaven. Why are, you, why are you not having the same kind of joy? So he's convicting the Pharisees and teaching us about repentance and what God is doing in repentance. Uh, how does the parable depict an unrepentant sinner? lost, afraid, paralyzed, unable to save oneself, totally dependent upon the finder. In contrast to the guy with the poster outside of a, the well, well-intentioned, well-meaning guy with the repent or go to hell. See, so he's trying to achieve, he's trying to accomplish this finding of lost sheep, assuming that they are not paralyzed assuming you can convince the sheep to to run back to the flock, to stop being lost. Since when does stop being lost help? If someone's lost you, help show them the way, right? Um, so, So a really helpful teaching of this, the gentleness, the kindness of the shepherd who's gathering together his flock and really bringing together this unity in, uh, from the joy in heaven brought down to joy on earth as he's focusing us not on self-righteousness, but on the, the forgiveness and righteousness won by the cross alone. That's the flockness. That's our, <clears throat> as those sh- the, of us belonging to the one shepherd, being sheep is together us all being found and fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we wander, he comes and gets us and brings us back. Beautiful picture of, of repentance. Us being the sheep who have fun, followed our noses like Toucan Sam down the, down the side of a mountain and Jesus having to crawl down and get us. Then, as if that wasn't clear enough, he just gives another parable, kind of a parallel. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. Now this takes it up a notch because before in the first parable, we're focusing on the the, um, self-inflicted lostness of the sheep. So the lostness is kind of the theme of the first parable. The second parable is gonna focus more on the diligence of the finder because what role did the coin have in getting lost? You ever lose your keys and then get really upset with your keys? Of course not. But when you lose your keys, like for most for most I won't not so, so that I don't sound sexist, most people who have purses. <laughs> like some sometimes you look in I mean Mary Mary Poppins' purse is a good picture of of the lost chasm of purses, oh, Mandy, where's the, oh, it's in the purse. I'm like, oh, what? It's not, what? So to lose something is not because the, the object itself got lost, but because of the everything else. Now, there is some, something to be learned from us or for something for us to learn from um, with those who are lost, those who are unrepentant, not because of themselves, but because of the messiness of the situation that they're in. Does that not describe our world so just this all of the clutter, all the distraction, all the the things to pile on top of that coin, uh, the darkness so it 's dark it 's dusty it 's dirty it 's covered it 's cluttered. maybe think parable to the sower the the, the the thorns that have grown up and choked out the the, the, the plant, so it 's the the lostness is not caused by the sheep here or the the coin here, but it's, the, it's simply in this circumstance of, of lostness. Perhaps the ten silver coins were a dowry of this of this woman, so she's got this great diligence and looking for it. And notice, so she's it's all after her diligence. Her her lighting a lamp, so bringing light into the darkness and cleaning up the clutter, sweeping out all the all the ick to try to to try to find this seeking diligently. So this parable, again, focusing on her searching diligently and endlessly because it doesn't search. She she doesn't seek diligently hoping that she finds it. She seeks diligently until, which means she doesn't what? Stop. That's a great picture of, of the Lord who's going after his, his people. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, and again, a party. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And again, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we get, again, this wonderful picture of joy in heaven over the angels of God, not because of our perfection on earth, but because of our repenting. That is being, being turned back to Jesus who, who has found us. Um, so how does this parable depict the unrepentant sinner? Similar to the sheep in a way, helpless in the dark. I mean, even more, I mean, you, maybe you're saying, well, the sheep is acting paralyzed, but really... If he, was, if he was really motivated, he'd get up and run back or run away from the coyote or something. But coins doing, a coin is doing no such thing. It's completely helpless and, and waiting to be found. Uh, in the darkness, so a lot of this light-darkness theme of Jesus bringing his light into the darkness that chases the darkness away, that scatters the darkness. God does the moving. God does the finding. God does the life-giving, and that is the gift of repentance. It's always helpful to repeat that again and again, because we often think repentance is the one, we're saved by grace through faith alone. No works, you're not saved by works, nothing you can do. No works, all Jesus, right? So you just need to repent. Wait a second, I thought you said I can't do anything. Well, you can't do anything except for repent. That seems like something. Well, what do you mean by repent? Stop sinning. If I could do that, then why would I need Jesus? So it re- totally recalibrates what we're thinking. What, what, what is repentance? And in, very often, sometimes it seems pop, pop Christianity, pop proclamation of what is repentance, like continues, propagates this idea of a false understanding of repentance. Of somebody standing on the street corner and telling you to stop doing the naughty thing that you're doing, or otherwise you're going to hell. That was the teaching of the Pharisees. Make yourself self-righteous. Fix yourself. And Jesus is bringing a totally different picture. You can't fix yourself. You need to be fixed. You need to be found. You need to be cleaned. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to do all the finding. So a better... A better um, Poster to have outside is simply Jesus loves you. The John 3.16 of the Tim Tebow <laughs> uh, of the world, it's not, it's not, that, that does get at the heart of it, of what Jesus is doing, who this good shepherd is. Jesus only dies for sinners. That's a helpful thing to have on your poster standing outside and if you're gonna insist on doing some kind of rioting, Jesus only dies for sinners. Now you can have a good conversation that's not focused on you fixing yourself but on Jesus being the fixer. And that leads us up to the prodigal son, but maybe we'll pause there for any questions before we jump in on the lost sheep and lost coin. Both of them kind of think say I found God. Oh, that's great. People are saying I found God. Right. Isn't that great? So the... Now, it, there, there is biblical imagery of, of, you know, people having this conversion experience, it's before, there, before there, was no, there was no God, or at least we would say there were plenty of gods, but there wasn't a living and true God, and then the lights went on, and then they, they found God. And it just... And we put the best construction, we know what they meant, right? And it's, if you know me, I'd be the one jerk who says, no, you didn't find God, he found you. you're like, quit quit raining on my parade, pastor. That's what we get a degree in. You go to seminary to learn how to rain on people's parade, no. Um, But so the, the, the beauty of repentance is we don't find God. No one seeks after God. We're actually hostile to God. He found us. So this is where we're able to say if a person says they found God, we can say amen because we know what they mean. He found them, right? Um, so keep the, give God all the active verbs. All right, the parable of the prodigal son, which may, may be a more properly called the parable of the merciful father or even the, the parable of the unrepentant older brother. The prodigal son gets all the attention because it ends, it ends happy for him. And we can all maybe associate with the prodigal son. We're all, we're all maybe happy to say, I was lost and, and now I'm found and it's great to be found. But really, Jesus is, is telling this entire parable, in fact, all three parables leading up to the end of chapter 15, which is the older brother, because who's he talking to and telling all these parables? The Pharisees. And remember how, the, so we'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll get there when we hopefully get to the older brother today. Um, there's really, one, one of the popularity of this parable, the causes of this popularity, the prodigal son is the picture of the scripture. It's the, it's the story of, of God's love for his people in the scriptures. Again and again and again in different ways, Um, but the prodigal son is the picture. God, the Father, loves His people, and His He loves His child, and His child wanders off, and He goes, longs to have them. He loves them. He wants them back. Um, The Father wants Him restored as His son, to find the lost and bring life to the dead. Verse 11, he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his dad, Dad, give me your money. You're dead to me. Basically what he says. Father, drop dead. Give me the share of property that is coming to me. Two problems here. Is he the older brother or the younger brother? The younger brother. So when dad dies, who gets most of the stuff? The older brother. So he's not even like... He's not even the one who's really going to be getting the bulk of the property. But this great shame here and telling dad to die so you can have his stuff. Give me what's coming to me. You're dead to me. And dad in his mercy and grace actually does it. He divides, and this is helpful, he divided his property between them. So notice he doesn't just give his money to the, Younger, he also gives it to the older, it would seem at least. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far, far country. There's something very important that skipped over here. If dad's a big farm, big successful farmer, he's got lots of assets, um, he's not, so the son who says, okay, I'm gonna leave, how is it, he doesn't like have a, a U-Haul that he backs up and loads up all this junk. What does he have to do before he leaves? Yeah. He has to convert the assets to cash, which brings, well, he doesn't do it to his dad. That wouldn't make any sense. So who is he selling this stuff to? The, the small little town. And now everybody is brought into the shame of what's going on. You're doing what now? Where did you get, like, where did you get this big tractor or ox or whatever, right? Everyone's like scratching their heads at this t- t- terrible shame that's coming to the community and to this one family. And this is the insanity of this man, this father. Why is he doing this? He should have just like, he should have said you're dead to him and kicked you out for just asking that. But he doesn't. He actually gave you all this stuff. Uh, then he, so he gathers all he had, went to a far country and there he squandered his property and reckless living. The word there for squandered, the Greek word, is the, it's the same word for like uh, the causing sheep to scatter. Or I think about like if you ever been on a jog and there's like a, all those Canadian geese that are for some reason protected by the federal government for some stupid reason, and they're all like gathered around the trail. And what do you have the joy of doing? Running at them, screaming, and watching them f- scatter in a million different directions. That's this, the scattering of the sheep, the scattering of the Canadian geese. But that's like, so he's got this, he's got all this wealth that he chases it away. So he wastes it. I mean, it's properly translated wasted. But this idea of just like running, just running it in different directions, fl- throwing it up into the air. In reckless living, that's the word where we get the, the word for prodigal, wasteful, uh, reckless That's the word there, reckless living. Notice it doesn't say what he was doing, but what what is often associated, what's included in this reckless living? Prostitutes. Prostitutes, why? Because Big Brother asserts it later. But notice there wasn't like an email exchange or a text conversation that was like, look at all the things that I'm doing now, Big Brother. So the big brother comes in from the field and he just assumes, so he's putting the worst construction on it to be sure. But we, I mean, that's, that's why it's often thought, it doesn't say what. It's intentionally vague here to make, the, to make the older brother look worse later in the parable. But when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, it went from bad to worse. He's out of money and then the famine comes and he began to be in need. So the Septuagint this is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's the same word here from uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That word there, want, this is the in need here. He began to, to be in need. And he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, Gentiles, because they, they had pigs. So he sent them out into the field to feed pigs. This unclean thing. As I reflected on this, I don't think, I mean, at this point, does he really care? I mean, maybe there's a, there's a cultural sense of when you're raised to know certain things are clean and unclean, maybe it's just, certain things are just, you're taught are icky, right? So maybe in our upbringing, a lot of that's coming from a cultural upbringing of things that are icky. And so um, the thought of the thought of pigs for the, for the Jew is just, just absolutely disgusting. They eat garbage. They eat, they're laying in their feces all day. It's just very unclean, very unclean thing. But more so than Jesus telling the story, he's, who's he hitting with this? It's the Pharisees. So this picture of the pigs here makes this whole story like, whoa, what did he do? Pigs. And not just was he feeding pigs, he was longing to be fed the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. He was dead. Remember lost sheep is a dead sheep. A lost coin is a worthless coin because you can't do anything with it. You can't use it to buy anything until you actually find it. And this son is dead. Um, no one gave him anything. No one, except for who? Who gave him something? His dad, dad gave him everything. So he's, as he's struck with nothing, he's, reman- reminding his, he's reminded of the last time someone gave him anything generously. That's when he comes to himself, he comes to his senses. You'll note here, he's not, he has not yet been brought to full repentance and you'll see why here in a second. All he, all he realizes is, wait a second, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I'm here with hunger. I should go, I should arise, get up, and go to my dad, which assumes that he's going to go back home and dad is not going to do what to him? Kill him on the spot for being the terrible scoundrel of a worthless son. Like he knows all along, his dad is gracious and merciful and kind and forgiving. He's counting on it. Isn't that interesting? Um, so he's remembering dad's generosity, but notice, he goes, so he puts together, he starts plotting here. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, this is a great picture of what we go through every Sunday. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I, a poor, miserable sinner, have sinned against heaven. You in thought, word, and deed. Who's you in there? Who's the pronoun? Talking about God. So I've sinned against God and one another. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. So our, our, our practice of confession and absolution is connected to this, by the way. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I don't deserve, I deserve nothing but temporal and eternal punishment. Right? But I am hardly sorry for them. No. Probably, probably good to, to mention that from time to time. There's a difference in hardly and heartily. Heartily. So as you go, I mean, so interestingly, you, so you imagine yourself as a lifelong Lutheran, you're growing up in the pew and you're, you can't read. So you've learned the liturgy before you can read. Doesn't heartily sound a lot like Hardly. And then by the time you can read, you don't actually need to look at the words. So I've, I've, I've met lifelong Lutherans who actually thought that was hardly and they never could figure out what they actually thought that they they're they're hardly sorry for them. actually is evidence of their depth of sin. So they kind of worked it out in their minds a way that this could be justifiable. They never really made sense. So I'd like to remove that that misconception from us. It's heartily, that is deep, deeply in my heart. Um, so I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And this is where it's, it's a problem, that he's not repentant. The father wants sons. He doesn't want his sons to despise him as a father and reject him as a father, want him dead. The father wants not more hired laborers. He's got plenty of those. He wants sons. And so here the son says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What makes someone unworthy to be a son? Nothing. Sonship isn't based upon worthiness. It's genetics, right? So it's never about worthiness and unworthiness. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So, so maybe there's a significant debt that I've, that I've accrued because of my reckless living. I took all this money from you. Now maybe if, if I work for you, for, if I'm an indentured servant for 20 years, I'll pay off the debt. I will work my way back into your good graces. So he's coming back to dad, not as a son, coming to a loving and merciful father, but he's trying to make a bargain. So he's coming on his own terms. He arose and came to his father, but this is beautiful. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was still a long way off, which means what's dad doing every day? He's, watch, he's, every, he's watching the horizon. It's like constantly looking out the window. You know, it's like when you're expecting company and you're always looking, at, even though it's, not, it's like 20 minutes before they're supposed to get here, but you're kind of looking, right? So he's always watching. He's not like expecting him to come back. While he's still a long way off, he saw him and felt compassion. That's the Greek, splunk uh, nizomai. If you ever heard Harrison preach, he always brings this up. It's, the, it's a Greek word that really gets at the guttural. His, his, his guts were turning with compassion. His guts wrenched. And then he ran. Which in, the, in, this, in this time, in this place, in Israel, grown men do not run. So he draws attention. He was wearing his robe, You have to lift his robe and go running. So he brought shame upon himself by doing this action and draw a lot, drew a lot of attention. Then he embraced him. Somebody told me a picture the other day, he, he squeezed the sin out of him. <laughs> and then he kissed him. So this is the, the show of honor. So all this like shaming of self, taking on his uncleanness, Honoring him. And the son then goes into the speech that he prepared. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he's coming, he's coming back to his father on his own terms. So the father wants him back, but not on the son's terms, on the father's terms. Our confession is kind of the same way. We're like you try to make deals with God, try to maybe justify our sin or try to think about ways I can work my way back into God's good graces or something. Some kind of restitution that maybe is necessitated for my sin. None of that. He'll have none of it. The father doesn't want a servant. He's got plenty of those. He wants a son. So so before he can even say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, he doesn't get to the part about, let me be one of your hired servants. Now, different commentators have different opinions here. Some say the father just cut him off before he could get to it. Some say maybe the son could kind of see that he's, he's getting back in. So maybe he, he didn't want to like show all of his cards, what he was, how, will, how far he was willing to go. Um, the most convincing one I read was that he perhaps leaves off the servant deal because he was so overwhelmed by, God, by his dad's mercy in all this. He no longer felt like it was needed. Either way, the father cuts him off and says to the servants, bring the, bring the best robe. He clothes him. With his own with his own clothes, puts it on him. Put a ring on his hand so he's back in the family, the signet ring of the family. Put shoes on his feet. Servants don't wear shoes. Only family and those of highest high um, respect, high regard. Put shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. So this is the. the, the This is a grain-fed calf set apart for like one specific sacrifice a year, a special, special occasion. So it's extra prime, juicy filet mignon, perfect feast here. Take the fattened calf and the Greek word sacrifice, not just kill it. It's important here. Uh, you sacrifice. A sacrifice is giving up the most valuable thing that you have for that which you love most. Isn't that, that's really what a sacrifice is. Uh, To sacrifice myself is to give myself to to God, or in marriage to give of myself to my spouse. So to give the most valuable thing that I have to that which I love the most. So he sacrifices the the calf, this grain fed, and then let's celebrate. Uh, No deals, just mercy for this, Great, the greatest line in the scripture. This, my son, my son, no longer, I don't want to serve it. My son was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and is found. Uh, The dead man, new man, baptismal life, clearly seen here. God's taking the dead and making it alive again. That would have been a great ending to the story. But like we learned at Thanksgiving and Christmas, when family comes back and gets together, there's always some excitement that takes place. A little family drama, maybe. And so here we have it. Little brother comes back and drama unfolds. His older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and heard the music and dancing. And he called out, hey, what's going on? What's the party for? And he says, your deadbeat brother has came, come home and your naive dad, killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. And at that point, the brother should have gone running. He's back. Run, party, get the bourbon, hug him, right? But he doesn't. He gets mad. Not that his brother's back. He's mad because of the party. He was angry and he refused to go in. So a life of faith agrees with what, what God is doing. A life of unfaith is this refusal. So he's re- rejecting God, re- rejecting the father's party here. Uh, so his anger leads to rejection and evil. And then his father comes out and entreats him, calls him lovingly, mercifully, humbly. And he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. Dad doesn't want a servant. What does he want? a son. So now this older brother has become the prodigal son. The prodigal son's back in the family and the older brother has now become a prodigal son. I served you. I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a goat. You never gave me what I deserve as he walks off his field with a job into a party with all the stuff in the mansion. You never gave me a thing, but this son of yours came and devoured your property with prostitutes there's this accusation that he had no idea. He had no idea what his brother did. You killed a fattened calf for him, envy, anger. And he says, son, you are always with me, comfort, my son. You're always with me. All that is mine is yours. I would have done anything for you. I love you so much. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad here because your brother was dead and now he's alive. He's lost and is now found. And that ends chapter 15. So if I'm a Pharisee listening to this, Jesus has taken me on this ride from the lost sheep, the lost coin, and now the prodigal son, and he has now flipped the tables on me and has made me looking down on the prodigal son to then kind of rejoicing at the son being home to now exposing my older brotherness, my refusal to rejoice at Jesus inviting tax collectors and sinners. So now I'm the older brother when I'm not rejoicing with those who are lost and are now found. Beautiful picture of repentance, the gift of repentance, restoration and mercy uh, of the Father to the Son of our Heavenly Father to us. The rejoicing that takes place in heaven uh, whenever sins are confessed and forgiven and the sinners are brought back into the mercy of Jesus. So there's a quick picture, you know, church, will start soon, but... You'll notice on the back of your hand out there, the big picture, this is actually Ed Rojas. He did the picture in the back of the, when you walk in the sanctuary on your left, there's a beautiful altarpiece piece of, um, of the resurrection. My, in my office, there's one of the crucifixion. This is one of his greatest portrayals, I think of the parables. You have the prodigal son coming home. You see the Holy Spirit kind of floating behind him. He's walking away from death and this kind of like burning down the city of destruction. And he's wandering back home where there's the contrast of all the plenty on the right and all the light on the right in the, in the house. And dad's coming running home. And you got the son who's noticed barefoot, his clothes are mangled. And dad's coming running to get him. So um, what I, Rio has, has a, you can Google him and see all of his He's a Lutheran artist out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, our savior there. Um, it's, not, it's not good to put copyright material on a handout unless you're trying to encourage people to buy this stuff. So if you're looking for a picture or a gift to give somebody in your family or a wonderful present for your church to buy it, you can buy this really big for like a couple hundred bucks, but the frames are the problem. Frames are like $600, like that big honkin' frame in this. So if you wanna be a part of the project of buying some really cool artwork that portrays the gospel so greatly, see me. Uh, we, can, uh, we can arrange to have some of this art purchased and framed for our, uh, our Narthex. And that way, and also this, by, by saying that, I don't get arrested for putting copyright uh, artwork on the bulletin. Well, uh, next week, we we'll look forward to Bishop Poyola, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of recap Prodigal Son a little bit, and then we'll, we'll get into 16 the, the following week. The Lord be with you.